Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called, The Son of Man Came to Seek and to Save the Lost, for Reformation Sunday. It's a guest essay by Helen Brooks, Department of English at Stanford University, and based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 31st, 2010. The Gospel for Reformation Sunday from Luke 19, 1-10 perfectly captures the essence of the Protestant Reformation, namely that Christ meets you where you are and that you need no intermediaries between yourself and a remote God. Whereas Zacchaeus, a rich tax collector, climbed up into the sycamore tree in order to see Jesus because of the crowd, because he was short of stature, Jesus calls to Zacchaeus and tells him to come down from the tree, for, quote, I must stay at your house today, end quote. Zacchaeus immediately descends from the tree, and we read, received Christ joyfully with the words, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus responds, Today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Notice that Jesus has appeared freely to Zacchaeus in the crowd, without any intermediaries or conditions. We're also told that the crowd was open to Christ's words because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. How should we conceive of the kingdom of God in this story? There are multiple ways to answer this question. I would like to offer one response to the reading that is contextualized by some of the key historical events surrounding the Protestant Reformation. First and foremost, we're told that Martin Luther, one of the leading theologians in the Reformation movement, who posted his 95 Theses on the castle door in 1517, is most often credited with formally launching the Protestant Reformation. But it's important to recognize that at the same time, other changes were occurring, some of which were profound, and that figured significantly not only in the orientation of the Reformation, but also in the biblical readings marked for Reformation Sunday and in particular the Gospel of Luke. The Reformation was the product of a long series of historical events, too numerous to outline here, but those events that that cast a thought-provoking light on the readings for Reformation Sunday are events that figure significantly in breaking down the barriers between the heavenly and the worldly, between the spiritual and the secular, and between the public and the private so that we can better grasp Christ's inbreaking into the worldly space that Zacchaeus occupies. What are some of these key historical events, and how can they help us to better grasp the richness of the Reformation Sunday readings? The dominant medieval paradigm rested on a so-called closed-world cosmology and a fixed conception of the human fostered in part by a hierarchical and centralized religious authority, lack of instrumentation, and an uneducated populace. 
but multiple events were at work to challenge that model and to give rise to the advent of the early modern world in its open orientation, subject now to a growing and even competing range of perspectives. Among these events, we find the decline of feudalism and the inception of capitalism, developments in shipbuilding and navigational instruments leading to the expansion of trade and colonialism in contact with previously unknown cultures, the rise of universities and a growing educated populace, the revival of classical thought and the humanist movement with its refocus on the individual, on experience, and on this world and perhaps of most significance, the invention of movable type in the early 15th century and the printing of the Bible and broad dissemination of ideas, and of course the theoretical writings of Copernicus, and later Galileo's empirical observations with the aid of the telescope, which decisively, decisively challenged that closed world and heliocentric cosmology, op launching an open and even infinite cosmology or what today we term our globalized world, fostered increasingly by developments in technology. Accompanying all of these changes was the rise of empiricism, or a challenge to receive truths in established authorities, which had marked the dominant medieval paradigm. With the rise of universities, the printing press, contact with other cultures and instrumentation, Centralized authority was undeniably challenged, even though we should pause here and recognize that education was not yet accessible for everyone. But it's in this context that we witness the shift to the modern inductive scientific method, or individuals looking for themselves rather than relying upon mere authority. They accompanied by the questioning of a fixed order of creation or of a fixed notion of human nature. The shift is toward the self as authority, although the relativism that accompanies the change plagues the world even today. In a play composed in the early 17th century, we witness Othello's well-known and telling response to the suggestion that Desdemona has been unfaithful. Give me the ocular proof, he says. Make me to see it. Othello demands that he look for himself rather than relying on the views of others. It's intriguing to consider also that the 14th century was the era in which eyeglasses appeared, a fact which might, which might at first seem of little significance, but in the context of the heightened empiricism assumes even greater importance. It is in this rich historical environment that the Protestant Reformation emerges a context in which the divine is increasingly regarded as in the world, an experiential reality rather than a remote God accessible only through a religious hierarchy. Luther, Luther emphasizes God's freely given gift of grace in salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, known also as the doctrine of the elect, in which Calvin's emphasis on predestination intensified is accompanied by the presence of heightened salvation anxiety in the early modern world. John Donne, a distinguished poet and dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London in the early 17th century, calls out to God in one of his well-known holy sonnets, number 14, Take me to you, 
imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free. Dunn, like Luther, held that faith in Christ has its source in the individual rather than through any external institution. At this defining moment in history, it's crucial to recognize that individuals, depending on their literacy, could now read the scriptures for themselves. In fact, for Luther, the word was the primary avenue to the divine, or what was labeled the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone, or the apotheosis of the word Jesus Christ, the only mediator between the individual and God. Whereas Renaissance humanism extolled the value of human reason and good works, Luther rejected free, free will and the role of reason in matters of salvation. Luther wrote, I have the comfortable certainty that I please God, not by reason of the merit of my works, but by reason of his merciful favor promised to me. Thus, in the absence of hierarchical authorities or intermediaries, one can experience an in-the-world spirituality. Mindful of the revelation of Zacchaeus in the Gospel reading for Reformation Sunday, Christ meets Zacchaeus where he is, empirically, thus issuing in a mind-altering experience for Zacchaeus, and hopefully for the readers of this biblical text today as well. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. For Reformation Sunday, a guest essay by Helen Brooks. For books this week, I review Barbara Demick. The title, Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea, New York, Spiegel and Growl, 2010, 319 pages. Barbara Demick, the Be Beijing bureau chief for the Los Angeles Times, moved to Seoul, Korea in 2001 for her newspaper, and across the next seven years made nine trips into North Korea. This oral history of the world's most oppressive and secretive regime is organized around the stories of six North Koreans who defected to South Korea, and is richly supplemented by her interviews with over a hundred people, personal study, and interactions with NGOs, government analysts, and various exiles. The result is a stunning portrait of a bizarre dictatorship that has brutalized its 23 million citizens. A satellite photo of the Korean peninsula at night shows South Korea ablaze with lights, and then, as if someone drew a line with a ruler at the 38th parallel, North Korea ink black except for the tiny dot of Pyongyang. This is a country where public displays of affection like holding hands are prohibited. International aid workers are not allowed to study Korean. The internet does not exist. Doctors operate in hospitals without electricity, heat, water, or antibiotics. Schools have no books or paper. Postal workers burn the mail for heat. Attendance at public executions is compulsory. History is reinvented wholesale. Religion is forbidden. 200,000 citizens languish in labor camps. 
people step over dead bodies in, in, in the streets. And in the late 1990s, upwards of two million people who died in a famine. All thanks to the great deer leader Kim Il-sung, 1912 to 1994, and his son Kim Jong-il, born in 1941. Things were not always so bad. For 1,300 years, Korea existed as a single entity. After 35 years of Japanese occupation, 1910 to 1945, and at the end of the war, the Western powers drew a line across the 38th parallel without any basis in culture or history, effectively giving the North to the Soviet Empire and the South to the West. For many decades, the North fared better than the South, but the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union <coughs> and China stranded North Korea without its major benefactors. Since they produced almost nothing and could not afford to buy anything, wholesale disaster followed. A kindergarten teacher watched her students die in front of her and her class size shrink from 50 to 15. A doctor had little more than a stethoscope. Starving citizens gathered grass, bark, and weeds in the woods for food. Surveillance is omnipresent. The title for Demick's book is A Biting Double Entendre based upon a song that every child memorizes, sung to the great dear leader. Our father, we have nothing to envy in the world. Our house is within the embrace of the workers' party. We are all brothers and sisters. Even if a sea of fire comes toward us, sweet children do not need to be afraid. Our Father is here. We have nothing to envy in the world. But when starving people catch furtive glimpses of South Korean television, or experience the riches of goods when they cross the border into China, experiential truth deconstructs a lifetime of lies. One of the six North Koreans centered around this book, Oak Hee, shouts at her mother, open your eyes, you'll see our whole country is a prison. We're pitiful. You don't know the reality of the rest of the world, she tells her mother. The great mystery bandied about by experts, says Demick in her final pages, is how and why the hermit kingdom can continue to exist. Barbara Demick, a remarkable book, Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea. For films this week, I go back to 2008. The title of the film, Frozen River. Ray Eddy is what some people call white trailer trash. I think of her as a heroic survivor. Her husband gambled away what little money they had, leaving her with a sullen teenage son and his younger brother. Ray dreams of a double-wide trailer and serves tang and popcorn for breakfast. Her television comes from a rent-to-own place, and she works at the dollar store in remote upstate New York. 
Ray teams up with a much younger Mohawk girl named Lila, who lives on a reservation on the border between Canada and New York. Ray has a beat-up car while Lila has the underworld contacts, and together they smuggle Chinese and Pakistani immigrants in the trunk of Ray's car across the frozen St. Lawrence River and into the United States. Each woman has her own motives for their criminal activity, and because those motives are rooted in economic survival, the quick money is way too good to pass up. The winter scenery in this film is spectacular, while the human stories are tragic. Frozen River won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 2008. And finally, for Reformation Sunday in All Saints Day, for poetry we've posted the wonderful hymn poem For All the Saints written in 1864 by William Howe. For all the saints who from their labor rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia, alleluia. O blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine. Yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. Alleluia, alleluia. And when the fight is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song. And hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. Alleluia. Alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl streams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Alleluia. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, October 31st, Reformation Sunday and All Saints Day. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.